September 9 to 15 of Morning and Evening Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Morning and Evening Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, September 9. I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Jeremiah 33 3. There are different translations of these words. One version renders it, I will show thee great and fortified things. Another, great and reserved things. Now there are reserved and special things in Christian experience. All the developments of spiritual life are not alike easy of attainment. There are common frames and feelings of repentance and faith and joy and hope which are enjoyed by the entire family but there is an upper realm of rapture, of communion, and conscious union with Christ, which is far from being the common dwelling-place of believers. We have not all the high privilege of John to lean upon Jesus's bosom, nor of Paul to be caught up into the third heaven. There are heights in experimental knowledge of the things of God which the eagle's eye of acumen and philosophic thought hath never seen. God alone can bear us there, but the chariot in which he takes us up, and the fiery steeds with which that chariot is dragged, are prevailing prayers. Prevailing prayer is victorious over the God of mercy, by his strength he had power with God, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed, he wept and made supplication unto him, he found him at Bethel, and there he spake with us. Prevailing prayer takes the Christian to Carmel, and enables him to cover heaven with clouds of blessing, and earth with floods of mercy. Prevailing prayer bears the Christian aloft to Pisgah, and shows him the inheritance reserved. It elevates us to Tabor, and transfigures us, till in the likeness of his Lord, as he is, so are we also in this world. If you would reach to something higher than ordinary groveling experience, Look to the rock that is higher than you, and gaze with the eye of faith through the window of importunate prayer. When you open the window on your side, it will not be bolted on the other. Evening, September 9. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. Revelation 4.4. 4. These representatives of the saints in heaven are said to be around the throne. In the passage in Canticles, where Solomon sings of the king sitting at his table, some render it a round table. From this, some expositors, I think, without straining the text, have said, there is an equality among the saints. That idea is conveyed by the equal nearness of the four-and-twenty elders. The condition of glorified spirits in heaven is that of nearness to Christ, clear vision of his glory, constant access to his court, and familiar friendship with his person. Nor is there any difference in this respect between one saint and another. But all the people of God, apostles, martyrs, ministers, or private and obscure Christians, shall all be seated near the throne, where they shall forever gaze upon their exalted Lord, and be satisfied with his love. They shall all be near to Christ, all ravished with his love, all eating and drinking at the same table with him, all equally beloved as his favorites and friends, even if not all equally rewarded as servants. Let believers on earth imitate the saints in heaven in their nearness to Christ. 
let us on earth be as the elders are in heaven, sitting around the throne. May Christ be the object of our thoughts, the centre of our lives. How can we endure to live at such a distance from our beloved? Lord Jesus, draw us nearer to thyself. Say unto us, Abide in me, and I in you, and permit us to sing, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. O lift me higher, nearer thee, and as I rise more pure and meet, O let my soul's humility make me lie lower at thy feet, less trusting self, the more I prove the blessed comfort of thy love. Morning, September 10. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. Mark 3.13. Here was sovereignty. Impatient spirits may fret and fume, because they are not called to the highest places in the ministry. But reader, be it thine to rejoice that Jesus calleth whom he wills. If he shall leave me to be a doorkeeper in his house, I shall cheerfully bless him for his grace in permitting me to do anything in his service. The call of Christ's servants comes from above. Jesus stands on the mountain, evermore above the world in holiness, earnestness, love, and power. Those whom he calls must go up to the mountain to him, they must seek to rise to his level by being in constant communion with him. They may not be able to mount to classic honors or attain scholastic eminence, but they must like Moses go up into the mount of God and have a familiar intercourse with the unseen God, or they will never be fitted to proclaim the gospel of peace. Jesus went apart to hold high fellowship with the Father, and we must enter into the same divine companionship if we would bless our fellow men. No wonder that the apostles were clothed with power when they came down fresh from the mountain where Jesus was. This morning we must endeavor to ascend the Mount of Communion, that there we may be ordained to the life-work for which we are set apart. Let us not see the face of man today till we have seen Jesus. Time spent with him is laid out at blessed interest. We too shall cast out devils and work wonders if we go down into the world girded with that divine energy which Christ alone can give. It is of no use going into the Lord's battle till we are armed with heavenly weapons. We must see Jesus, this is essential." At the mercy seat we will linger till he shall manifest himself unto us, as he doth not unto the world, and until we can truthfully say, we were with him in the holy mount. Evening, September 10. Evening Wolves, Habakkuk 1.8. While preparing the present volume, this particular expression recurred to me so frequently that in order to be rid of its constant importunity I determined to give a page to it. The evening wolf, infuriated by a day of hunger, was fiercer and more ravenous than he would have been in the morning. May not the furious creature represent our doubts and fears after a day of distraction of mind, losses in business, and perhaps ungenerous tauntings from our fellow men? How our thoughts howl in our ears, Where is now thy God? How voracious and greedy they are, swallowing up all suggestions of comfort, and remaining as hungry as before. Great Shepherd, slay these evening wolves, and bid thy sleep lie down in green pastures, undisturbed by insatiable unbelief. How like are the fiends of hell to evening wolves, 
for when the flock of Christ are in a cloudy and dark day, and their sun seems going down, they hasten to tear and to devour. They will scarcely attack the Christian in the daylight of faith, but in the gloom of soul conflict they fall upon him. O oh, thou who hast laid down thy life for the sheep, preserve them from the fangs of the wolf. False teachers who craftily and industriously hunt for the precious life, devouring men by their falsehoods, are as dangerous and detestable as evening wolves. Darkness is their element, conceit is their character, destruction is their end. We are most in danger from them when they wear the sheep's skin. Blessed is he who is kept from them, for thousands are made the prey of grievous wolves that enter within the fold of the church. What a wonder of grace it is when fierce persecutors are converted, for then the wolf dwells with the lamb, and men of cruel ungovernable dispositions become gentle and teachable. O Lord, convert many such, for such we will pray to-night. Morning, September 11. Be ye separate. Second Corinthians 6.17. The Christian, while in the world, is not to be of the world. He should be distinguished from it in the great object of his life. To him, to live, should be Christ. Whether he eats or drinks or whatever he does, he should do all to God's glory. You may lay up treasure, but lay it up in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves break not through nor steal. You may strive to be rich, but be it your ambition to be rich in faith and good works. You may have pleasure, but when you are merry, sing psalms and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. In your spirit, as well as in your aim, you should differ from the world. Waiting humbly before God, always conscious of His presence, delighting in communion with Him, and seeking to know His will, you will prove that you are of heavenly race. And you should be separate from the world in your actions. If a thing be right, though you lose by it, it must be done. If it be wrong, though you would gain by it, you must scorn the sin for your master's sake. You must have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Walk worthy of your high calling and dignity. Remember, O Christian, that thou art a son of the King of Kings. Therefore keep thyself unspotted from the world. Soil not the fingers which are soon to sweep celestial strings. Let not these eyes become the windows of lust which are soon to see the King in his beauty. Let not those feet be defiled in miry places which are soon to walk the golden streets. Let not those hearts be filled with pride and bitterness, which are ere long to be filled with heaven, and to overflow with ecstatic joy. Then rise my soul and soar away above the thoughtless crowd, above the pleasures of the gay and splendors of the proud, up where eternal beauties bloom and pleasures all divine, where wealth that never can consume and endless glories shine. Evening, September 11. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Psalms 5, 8. Very bitter is the enmity of the world against the people of Christ. Men will forgive a thousand faults in others, but they will magnify the most trivial offense in the followers of Jesus. Instead of vainly regretting this, let us turn it to account, and since so many are watching for our halting, 
let this be a special motive for walking very carefully before God. If we live carelessly, the lynx-eyed world will soon see it, and with its hundred tongues it will spread the story, exaggerated and emblazoned by the zeal of slander. They will shout triumphantly, Aha! so would we have it! See how these Christians act! They are hypocrites to a man! Thus will much damage be done to the cause of Christ, and much insult offered to his name. The cross of Christ is in itself an offence to the world. Let us take heed that we add no offence of our own. It is to the Jews a stumbling-block. Let us mind that we put no stumbling-blocks where there are enough already. To the Greeks it is foolishness. Let us not add our folly to give point to the scorn with which the worldly-wise deride the gospel. How jealous should we be of ourselves! How rigid with our consciences! In the presence of adversaries who will misinterpret our best deeds, and impugn our motives where they cannot censure our actions, how circumspect should we be! Pilgrims travel as suspected persons through vanity fair. Not only are we under surveillance, but there are more spies than we know of. The espionage is everywhere, at home and abroad. If we fall into the enemy's hands, we may sooner expect generosity from a wolf, or mercy from a fiend, than anything like patience with our infirmities from men who spice their infidelity towards God with scandals against his people. O Lord, lead us ever, lest our enemies trip us up. Morning, September 12. God is jealous. Nahum 1-2. Our Lord is very jealous of your love, O believer. Did he choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think that you are your own, or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he would not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than you should perish, and he cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and himself. He is very jealous of your trust. He will not permit you to trust in an arm of flesh. He cannot bear that you should hew out broken cisterns, when the overflowing fountain is always free to you. When we lean upon him, he is glad, but when we transfer our dependence to another, when we rely upon our own wisdom or the wisdom of a friend, worst of all, when we trust in any works of our own, he is displeased and will chasten us that he may bring us to himself. He is also very jealous of our company. There should be no one with whom we converse so much as with Jesus. To abide in him only, this is true love. But to commune with the world, to find sufficient solace in our carnal comforts, to prefer even the society of our fellow Christians to secret intercourse with him, this is grievous to our jealous Lord. He would fain have us abide in him, and enjoy constant fellowship with himself. And many of the trials which he sends us are for the purpose of weaning our hearts from the creature, and fixing them more closely upon himself. Let this jealousy which would keep us near to Christ be also a comfort to us, for he loves us so much as to care thus about our love that we may be sure that he will suffer nothing to harm us, and will protect us from all our enemies. Oh, that we may have grace this day to keep our hearts in sacred chastity for our beloved alone, with sacred jealousy shutting our eyes to all the fascinations of the world. 
Evening, September 12. I will sing of mercy and judgment. Psalm 101, verse 1. Faith triumphs in trial. When reason is thrust into the inner prison, with her feet made fast in the stocks, faith makes the dungeon walls ring with her merry notes as she cries, I will sing of mercy and of judgment, unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Faith pulls the black mask from the face of trouble, and discovers the angel beneath. Faith looks up at the cloud, and sees that, tis big with mercy, and shall break in blessings on her head. There is a subject for song even in the judgments of God towards us. For, first, the trial is not so heavy as it might have been. Next, the trouble is not so severe as we deserved to have borne and our affliction is not so crushing as the burden which others have to carry. Faith sees that in her worst sorrow there is nothing penal, there is not a drop of God's wrath in it, it is all sent in love. Faith discerns love gleaming like a jewel on the breast of an angry God. Faith says of her grief, This is a badge of honor, for the child must feel the rod and then she sings of the sweet result of her sorrows, because they work her spiritual good. Nay, more, says faith, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work out for me a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So faith rides forth on the black horse, conquering and to conquer, trampling down carnal reason and fleshly sense, and chanting notes of victory amid the thickest of the fray. All I meet, I find, assists me in my path to heavenly joy, where, though trials now attend me, trials never more annoy. Blessed there with a weight of glory, till the path I'll ne'er forget, but exulting cry it led me to my blessed Saviour's seat. Morning, September 13. Who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well, the rain also filleth the pools. Psalm 84, 6. This teaches us that the comfort obtained by a one may often prove serviceable to another, just as wells would be used by the company who came after. We read some book full of consolation, which is like Jonathan's rod dropping with honey. Ah, we think our brother has been here before us, and digged this well for us as well as for himself. Many a night of weeping, midnight harmonies, an eternal day, a crook in the lot, a comfort for mourners, has been a well digged by a pilgrim for himself, but has proved quite as useful to others. Specially we notice this in the Psalms, such as that beginning, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Travellers have been delighted to see the footprint of man on a barren shore, and we love to see the waymarks of pilgrims while passing through the veil of tears. The pilgrims dig the well, but, strange enough, it fills from the top instead of the bottom. We use the means, but the blessing does not spring from the means. We dig a well, but heaven fills it with rain. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. The means are connected with the end, but they do not of themselves produce it. See here the rain fills the pools, so that the wells become useful as reservoirs for the water. Labor is not lost, but yet it does not supersede divine help. Grace may well be compared to rain for its purity, for its refreshing and vivifying influence, for its coming alone from above, 
and for the sovereignty with which it is given or withheld. May our readers have showers of blessing, and may the wells they have digged be filled with water. Oh, what are means and ordinances without the smile of heaven? They are as clouds without rain, and pools without water. O God of love, open the windows of heaven, and pour us out a blessing. Evening, September 13. This man receiveth sinners. Luke 15, 2. Observe the condescension of this fact. This man, who towers above all other men, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, this man receiveth sinners. This man, who is no other than the eternal God, before whom angels veil their faces, this man receiveth sinners. It needs an angel's tongue to describe such a mighty stoop of love. That any of us should be willing to seek after the lost is nothing wonderful. They are of our own race. But that he, the offended God, against whom the transgression has been committed, should take upon himself the form of a servant, and bear the sin of many, and should then be willing to receive the vilest of the vile, this is marvellous. This man receiveth sinners, not, however, that they may remain sinners, but he receives them that he may pardon their sins, justify their persons, cleanse their hearts by his purifying word, preserve their souls by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, and enable them to serve him, to show forth his praise, and to have communion with him. Into his heart's love he receives sinners, takes them from the dunghill, and wears them as jewels in his crown, plucks them as brands from the burning, and preserves them as costly monuments of his mercy. None are so precious in Jesus's sight as the sinners for whom he died. When Jesus receives sinners, he has not some out-of-doors reception place, no casual ward where he charitably entertains them as men do passing beggars, but he opens the golden gates of his royal heart, and receives the sinner right into himself. Yea, he admits the humble penitent into personal union, and makes him a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. There was never such a reception as this. This fact is still most sure this evening, he is still receiving sinners. Would to God sinners would receive him. Morning, September 14. There were also with him other little ships. Mark 4.36 Jesus was the Lord High Admiral of the sea that night, and his presence preserved the whole convoy. It is well to sail with Jesus, even though it be in a little ship. When we sail in Christ's company, we may not make sure of fair weather, for great storms may toss the vessel which carries the Lord himself, and we must not expect to find the sea less boisterous around our little boat. If we go with Jesus, we must be content to fare as he fares, and when the waves are rough to him, they will be rough to us. It is by tempest and tossing that we shall come to land, as he did before us. When the storm swept over Galilee's dark lake, all faces gathered blackness, and all hearts dreaded shipwreck. When all creature help was useless, the slumbering Saviour arose, and with a word transformed the riot of the tempest into the deep quiet of a calm. Then were the little vessels at rest, as well as that which carried the Lord. Jesus is the star of the sea, and though there be sorrow upon the sea, when Jesus is on it there is joy too. 
may our hearts make jesus their anchor their rudder their lighthouse their lifeboat and their harbour his church is the admiral's flagship let us attend her movements and cheer her officers with our presence he himself is the great attraction let us follow ever in his wake mark his signals steer by his chart and never fear while he is within hail not one ship in the convoy shall suffer wreck the great commodore will steer every bark in safety to the desired haven by faith we will slip our cable for another day's cruise and sail forth with jesus into a sea of tribulation winds and waves will not spare us but they all obey him and therefore whatever squalls may occur without faith shall feel a blessed calm within he is ever in the centre of the weather-beaten company let us rejoice in him his vessel has reached the haven and so shall ours evening september fourteen i acknowledged my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have i not hid i said i will confess my transgressions unto the lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin psalm thirty two five david's grief for sin was bitter its effects were visible upon his outward frame his bones waxed old his moisture was turned into the drought of summer no remedy could he find until he made a full confession before the throne of heavenly grace he tells us that for a time he kept silence and his heart became more and more filled with grief like a mountain tarn whose outlet is blocked up his soul was swollen with torrents of sorrow he fashioned excuses he endeavoured to divert his thoughts but it was all to no purpose like a festering sore his anguish gathered and as he would not use the lancet of confession his spirit was full of torment and knew no rest at last it came to this that he must return unto god in humble penitence or die outright so he hastened to the mercy seat and there unrolled the volume of his iniquities before the all-seeing one acknowledging all the evil of his ways in language such as you read in the fifty-first and other penitential psalms having done this a work so simple and yet so difficult to pride he received at once the token of divine forgiveness the bones which had been broken were made to rejoice and he came forth from his closet to sing the blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven see the value of a grace-wrought confession of sin it is to be prized above all price for in every case where there is a genuine gracious confession mercy is freely given not because the repentance and confession deserve mercy but for christ's sake blessed be god there is always healing for the broken heart the fountain is ever flowing to cleanse us from our sins truly o lord thou art a god ready to pardon therefore will we acknowledge our iniquities morning september fifteen he shall not be afraid of evil tidings psalm one hundred twelve verse seven christian you ought not to dread the arrival of evil tidings because if you are distressed by them what do you more than other men other men have not your god to fly to they have never proved his faithfulness as you have done and it is no wonder if they are bowed down with alarm and cowed with fear but you profess to be of another spirit you have been begotten again unto a lively hope and your heart lives in heaven and not on earthly things 
now if you are seen to be distracted as other men what is the value of that grace which you profess to have received where is the dignity of that new nature which you claim to possess again if you should be filled with alarm as others are you would doubtless be led into the sins so common to others under trying circumstances the ungodly when they are overtaken by evil tidings rebel against god they murmur and think that god deals hardly with them will you fall into that same sin will you provoke the lord as they do moreover unconverted men often run to wrong means in order to escape from difficulties and you will be sure to do the same if your mind yields to the present pressure trust in the lord and wait patiently for him your wisest course is to do as moses did at the red sea stand still and see the salvation of god for if you give way to fear when you hear of evil tidings you will be unable to meet the trouble with that calm composure which nerves for duty and sustains under adversity how can you glorify god if you play the coward saints have often sung god's high praises in the fires but will your doubting and desponding as if you had none to help you magnify the most high then take courage and relying in sure confidence upon the faithfulness of your covenant god let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid evening september fifteen a people near unto him psalm one hundred forty eight fourteen the dispensation of the old covenant was that of distance when god appeared even to his servant moses he said draw not nigh hither put off thy shoes from thy feet and when he manifested himself upon mount sinai to his own chosen and separated people one of the first commands was thou shalt set bounds about the mount both in the sacred worship of the tabernacle and the temple the thought of distance was always prominent the mass of the people did not even enter the outer court into the inner court none but the priests might dare to intrude while into the innermost place or the holy of holies the high priest entered but once in the year it was as if the lord in those early ages would teach man that sin was so utterly loathsome to him that he must treat men as lepers put without the camp and when he came nearest to them he yet made them feel the width of the separation between a holy god and an impure sinner when the gospel came we were placed on quite another footing the word go was exchanged for come distance was made to give place to nearness and we who aforetime were afar off were made nigh by the blood of jesus christ incarnate deity has no wall of fire about it come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest is the joyful proclamation of god as he appears in human flesh not now does he teach the leper his leprosy by setting him at a distance but by himself suffering the penalty of his defilement what a state of safety and privilege is this nearness to god through jesus do you know it by experience if you know it are you living in the power of it marvellous is this nearness yet it is to be followed by a dispensation of greater nearness still when it shall be said the tabernacle of god is with men and he doth dwell among them hasten it o lord end of september nine through fifteen